We'll be in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. If you've never opened a Bible, that's okay. It's the very first book, chapter 1, starting in verse 26. We're going to title this message tonight, How to Be a Good Person. How to Be a Good Person. We are doing a study called Truth and Apply, and we are exploring different concepts that are biblical that prove that God is good, that God exists, that God still does miracles. And then we're also seeing how those concepts apply to our everyday lives. So Truth and Apply, this is part four, and the title is How to Be a Good Person. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Let us read the passage and pray, and we will begin our message. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth and God said see I've given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you it shall be for food also to every beast of the earth to every bird of the air and to every everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life I have given every green herb for food and it was so then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Here is the beginning of all of creation, and God shows us exactly how it looked in the beginning. What took place as he was creating the universe, as he's creating earth, and zooms in to talk about animals, talks about man, talks about woman, talks about what God's purpose was, in creating humankind and what they were tasked to do. Now, what that all means, we'll find out, but let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray that you'd help us to focus right now on your holy scripture. We believe that the Bible is your love letter to us. And as we read it, it's not just like any other book, but there's a God who's real, who loves us and desires for us to walk with him. And we pray tonight, Lord, that you would prove yourself to be real, prove yourself to be loving and good, that we walk out of here knowing you a little bit better. But we need your Holy Spirit. So do that for us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever met a nice guy before? A really, really nice person. A person you just said, you know what? That guy is just a really, really nice guy. Maybe... You're thinking of a person in your family, maybe a friend. Somebody just like goes above and beyond what you ask them to do, right? Have you ever met someone like that? Maybe in a mall. Perhaps a mall kiosk. 
You're walking by and suddenly you meet the nicest people you've ever met, right? It could be a car salesman. Suddenly, like, wow, these, this guy's pretty nice. Free coffee. And he's like asking me how I'm doing. How is my day going? Well, the mall kiosk people are the worst, right? The worst at being nice in that you walk by them like, hi, I love your hair. Are you a model? Oh my goodness, you look great. And if we're naive, we're going to walk on by and say, yes, I do look great. Tell me more about what it is that you sell, right? There's an underlying motive behind their niceness. Once upon a time, when I was kinder and nicer, I was walking in such a kiosk and a kind gentleman drew my attention by saying, hi, how are you doing? How's your day going? And I just walked right over. He said, can I get just like a minute of your time? Sure. Never say sure to these people because you know what happens next. He's one of those nail people, the guys that make your nails shiny. So he's like, watch this. He's like, give me your hand. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Uh, what are you going to do? Put a ring on it? I don't really know what you're going to do, right? <laughs> give him my thumb. Takes like a buffer thing and just like scrubs it. He's like, behold. And I look upon my thumb and lo and behold, it was shining. And I looked at it like it was like almost like glaring in my eye, you know? And I'm looking at him like, what did you do? He's like, isn't that awesome? And I'm like, no, how do you undo this? <laughs> and he's like, it takes about two weeks or so for it to unbuff. And I'm just like, so I'm just going to have one shiny thumb for two weeks? It's the worst, right? So I think from things like that, we understand that not everybody who's being nice is somebody that you can trust. Not everybody that is good or appears to be good is actually good on the inside. Sometimes people have underlying motives. What we learned last week is that God is a good God. He is a source of all goodness. And through actually our, our sense of good and evil, that actually leads us to ask the question, where do these senses come from? Where do we get this idea of goodness? And we explored last week, if you didn't get the message, you can listen online, is that that goodness comes from God himself. He is the source of all goodness. Well, tonight, we're going to be exploring the question, first off, of why should we be good? Now, that's a super basic question, right? That, that question of why should we be good almost seems like a question that nobody asks because everybody does it intuitively. You should be good because it's the right thing to do because everyone wants to be treated well, etc. But if you think about it, on a, a worldview that doesn't take Jesus into consideration, so a non-Christian worldview, what motivation could we have to being good? Now, if you're a strict atheist and you believe in evolutionary theory, you might believe in something called altruism. Altruism, according to the dictionary, is the belief in or practice of disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. So when you are selfless, when you are thinking of others and you're actually being self-sacrificial, that's what they might call altruism, this propensity to do that even though it seems like on evolutionary theory, if the, if the strong survive, you wouldn't want to help the weak, right? The weak die out and this, the strong will go on. So what could be your motivation on that kind of worldview in order to do good? Well, one reason might be for a fulfilling existence. People, philosophers like Aristotle, 
thought, you know, to have a really rich and fulfilling life, you should be a virtuous person. Or you should be a good person, right? By doing the right thing, by being a good person, you will probably get more out of life. And mo most of us think of that as like, that's probably true, right? You don't have to be a Christian to believe that. Everyone wants to do good things because if you do good things, you'll probably get things back. People call that karma, right? Do good and then you'll have good in some other world or universe or whatever will come back to you. But here's the problem with that. If the reason why we do good to other people is just for our own fulfilling existence or for our own happiness, what does that mean? That means that every good deed that we do is a selfish act. Every good deed that we do has selfish motivation behind it. It doesn't make us much better than the guy who is behind that mall kiosk, does it? He's being nice only because he has selfish interests. And could it be that if that is our motivation to have a fulfilling existence, that we would actually be doing something wrong, not right? It's like if we, the only reason why we give money to the poor is so that we feel better about ourselves, what good is that? That, that kind of robs it of all of its meaning, doesn't it? Here's what Dr. Stephen Taylor, who's a, not a Christian of psychology today, said this. According to some psychologists, there is no such thing as pure altruism. So there's nothing really to be said about the selfless concern. There's not, that doesn't really exist. When we help strangers or animals, there must always be some benefit to us, even if we're not aware of it. Altruism or the belief of the practice of selfless concern makes us feel good about ourselves it makes us it makes other people respect us more or it might as far as we believe increase our chances of getting into heaven so what he's saying the psychologist who's not a christian is saying that there's really no such thing as being selfless all of us because of evolutionary theory are doing things out of selfish ambition so it could be that you want to be more appealing to the opposite sex. It could be that you want to be more attractive in general. It could be so you're able to get a good job. There's always some motivation behind it, and that's why we do it. But then I think that kind of what is called reductionism is what's so challenging about that and what's so dangerous about that, I think. It's almost like it robs all kinds of good deeds of all of its beauty and value. It's almost like when the evolutionary theorist says that love, that feeling that you get when you're like, man, this person is so beautiful and I want to like make them happy and I want to do things for them. All that is, it's a chemical reaction in your brain. That's it. That's what reductionism does. It says all these feelings that you have can be explained if you just take a peek in your brain and look at it and there's a chemical and that's firing. And if we just mess around with your brain, you probably love somebody else. Right? That's scary and we would hope that's not true. That robs it of all of its value, all of its meaning. To say every good deed you do isn't because you're a nice person. Really, what it comes down to is you're just being selfish. And you're wired that way. And I think that kind of worldview is actually untenable. I don't think that's a view that we want to believe in, right? So here's another one. Here's another problem with this view of it being selfish or, or fulfilling existence. Having a fulfilling existence, that's our motivation. Doing what is good is not always beneficial in this life. Sometimes the right thing to do means it costs us something, right? When we see injustice in this world, we want to correct it. And sometimes that means that we ourselves are harmed in the midst of that. We can think of a person who does good things all of his life. 
and he's thrown in prison for a crime he didn't commit. What do you do about that kind of injustice? How is he living a fulfilling existence when life itself is unfair? Now, maybe you're going to increase your chances of having a happy life if you're a good person, but that's not always the case because there are really some bad people out there. And I don't think it explains why some people still feel that sacrificing yourself is a, a right and good thing to do. How do you explain the person that literally, like in uh, Aurora, Colorado, when there were people protecting their significant others, when there was uh, the gunman who was firing in that movie theater, and he was sacrificing himself for somebody else? How do you explain that? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Now, the scientist who's not a Christian, who's an atheist, will look at that and say, well, that's just his reaction, but it doesn't really... You know, it's not something that you would do wisely according to evolutionary theory. But I think all of us would look at that and admire that and say, no, that's heroic when people are fighting ISIS in another country and risking their lives so that we can enjoy our freedom here. Everyone looks at that and says, no, that's noble, that's heroic, and that's not stupid. As you would be forced to believe if you're just believing in evolutionary theory apart from God. So what, could else, what else could be your motivation if you don't believe in Jesus and you want to do good? Well, maybe because it's the right thing to do. So by doing good to others, we know that it's right and it's moral and we should just because. But we explored last week that there is no just because, right? If God doesn't exist, it's hard to see what makes anything objectively right or wrong. And objectively meaning independent of our thinking, it's right or wrong. Like gravity is an objective truth. You can say, I don't believe in gravity and jump off a cliff and you will die because gravity exists whether you believe or not. So what would make concepts like good and evil actually exist if there's no God authority above humanity that is the source of that good? Lastly, maybe people should do good on a worldview without God. Because if you refuse to do good, you'll be punished and or despised. And maybe, maybe that's actually some people's motivation for doing the right thing. Because you're afraid of getting in trouble. You're afraid if you don't do the right thing, someone's going to come knocking on your door and maybe the police are going to be able to arrest you because you stole things. And that's why you do good. You do the right thing. Not because you believe that it's really wrong to do bad things. And not because you believe it's going to be a fulfilling existence or whatever. You believe that if you do the wrong thing, you could be caught and that would be a bad thing to do, right? That would be bad. But in that case, it still makes you selfish, doesn't it? And on top of that, what this means is this. That you aren't really who you are until nobody else is looking. And that's a scary thing to know about yourself, right? Isn't it true that when we are, let's say, in a relationship, we want to believe that we can trust somebody else. And when we trust somebody else, that means being vulnerable, right? That means telling some of your deepest secrets to somebody that you love when you're married, when you're in a relationship. Being vulnerable in marriage and, and you're actually giving yourself sexually to somebody else, you are hoping that you're trusting that this person won't cheat on you, right? But what if you were told that the only reason why this person isn't cheating on you is because if they cheated on you, they would get caught and they don't want to get caught? Doesn't that rob love of all of its power? 
if the only reason why I'm loving you and doing good to you is just because I'm afraid of being punished, that doesn't seem like great motivation, does it? So on atheism or belief without God, I think it's kind of hard to see why we would do good things. Now, on Christianity, then is the question, why should Christians do good? Why should humans do good according to the teachings of Scripture? And this is what we find in Genesis chapter 1. It says in verse 26 that God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, that God created us to be like him. God himself is good and wants us also to be good. You and I might know what it means to be a cat, right? Like cats have certain attributes, right? They meow. They're really annoying. My cat's getting senile, so 3 a.m. in the morning, I'll just go, wow. <laughs> but it's like, it's not a meow. It's, it's like, wow. It sounds like it's dying or choking. And every, like, I had to sit down with the cat. I did. I was just like, listen, Yoda. It's a girl Yoda, but it's my sister's, you know, wrongdoing. Talk about naming the animals, right, in Genesis chapter 1. So I'm like, listen, Yoda, this can't go on. You must stop this. This is madness. It just looks at you like, like, you're crazy. So we know what it means to be a cat. It has certain attributes, being stupid, but looks cute, but hates you. A dog barks. It pants. Gorillas do things gorillas do. Take babies by the ankle and throw them around, right? <laughs> we know what certain animals do. Because we know their attributes. Now, here's a good question. Lions roar. Dogs bark. We know humans speak. But what does it actually mean to be a human? What does it mean to be a human being? That question is a little bit harder to answer if you don't know God. But according to the teaching of the Bible, a human is to be reflecting the image of God in his likeness. We are to be modeling ourselves not to look like God, like visually, but to actually model the attributes of God on this universe. And if you think about it, different animals work in harmony to stabilize the ecosystem, right? And this is why in hunting, there are certain animals that you can only hunt at certain seasons of the year. Because if you kill too many deer at one point of the season or whatever, you could actually disturb the ecosystem. It could be bad. God ordained the ecosystem we're living in such a way so that they'd be able to live in harmony. And humans, our role was to, it says here in uh, Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the role of humans was to have dominion, authority over the other animals, to be fruitful, to do good, and to multiply. And by multiplying, they're showing the goodness of God amongst all of the earth. We're showing how good God is, the creator is, and reflecting it in the good things that we do. And having dominion over the animals, this is why God told Adam to name the animals. Because especially according to Jewish traditions, when you name something, you had authority over it. This is why your parents name you. It is putting their stamp of authority over you, saying, this is what I'm calling you. 
And for the Jewish person, when you name somebody something, you were actually saying something about their destiny, about a role that you wanted them to fulfill. And God starts off by naming us and giving us a role to play in this universe. It's almost like God is a, a, a director of a movie, and he's, just, he's writing a script, and he's giving us as the actors a role to play and telling us how we should do it in order to have an amazing movie, have an amazing uh, script or amazing play. So here's the first point for tonight. Why should we do good? Because goodness is beautiful, and it magnifies the beauty and glory of our loving creator. God created everything very good in the beginning. It's beautiful. And as we do good, it magnifies the beauty and the glory of our loving creator. All of us know intuitively, as you're sitting on a cliff and you're watching the sunset, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to do that, but like when I go rock climbing outside or I'm in Texas and I'm watching the sunset, you don't want to just do that by yourself, right? You want someone else there to share that experience. When you're eating something amazing, you're having a great meal, you want to be able to have somebody with you to share that experience. If you don't believe me, why else do you share on Instagram? You want other people to see what you're seeing and be able to be in awe of the beauty that is before you. If that's the case, then God creating everything good in the beginning and putting humans in charge of all of creation was so that we could share his goodness and his beauty with one another. So God setting the stage, creating everything beautiful, is almost like someone who's an architect and giving you the master plan on how to build the most beautiful house. And he's handing us these plans and saying, this is exactly how I want you to do it. But listen, there are some things in order to make this house beautiful and also livable that you have to go through. And in building a house, there are certain codes and requirements and structural things that you have to know in order to make sure the, the house not only looks great, but it's able to stand. And listen very carefully. God gave us laws. He gave us rules, things to obey so that we would be able to live the most beautiful kind of life. It's not good for the sake of good, but in, in order to fulfill his commands— and in order to show the world how good our God is, reflecting his nature in everything that we do. This is what it says in John chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. All things were made through him, and without him, that him being God, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Realize when God created the earth, and when God created human beings— the Spirit of God hovered above the waters of the deep, it says. And then the Spirit of God breathed into the dust, and it became human life. That's how God created. He could, I'm sure that he could have just like made things just appear, right? But he decided to take what was already there and breathe into it. And our job is to do the similar thing in his likeness, right? That we see some of the most dirty, some of the most unappreciated things in the world, and we're, we're saying, you know what? There's beauty in this thing too. We're, and if we're, if we're honest, if we look at the people around us in the world today, a lot of people evaluate each other, who they're going to be friends with, based on their certain qualities, right? Based on what they can give me. It's once again, selfish ambition. I'll befriend these people because they're popular. 
I'm going to go to that school because then everybody will recognize me. I'm going to play at that school because they have uh, a great sports program. We're always thinking of ourselves. We're using that selfish ambition. But in God's economy, even the lowest person on earth is beautiful and significant. Evolutionary theory says only the strong survive. Don't care about the weak. It's only going to hold you back. But Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is made for kids, children. He's, he made every single person fearfully and wonderfully made, beautiful. Which means that if you feel like a common person, you feel average, don't worry. Because God made you beautiful and he has a calling on your life. There is no part of this universe that is without purpose. Every star has its place. Every animal has its place. And yes, every human being, no matter how insignificant and common you feel, God loves you. He has a plan for you. And he has a role for you to play. Not just the most popular, most famous. Actually, those people are sometimes the farthest from God because they don't think they need God. But the sinner, the person who says, Lord, I am a wretch. Nobody likes me. No one wants to be my friend. Jesus wants to be your friend. And he created you for a purpose. So, we were created to be spreading his goodness, his image, and blessing among the earth. To show how good God is. And that's why Christians have been at the forefront of starting the first hospitals in human history. Because we care about every single human life. No matter what you believe about abortion, this is why Christians care so much about the subject. Because we believe no matter what life it looks like, if it is human life, if you can prove that it's human life, we care about every single human life. Now, in evolutionary theory, why would you care about any life except your own? So what went wrong in all this? God created everything good, everything beautiful to reflect his image, his glory, and we are his agents to show how good God is. We are his handiwork. We're going around and we're saying, look how good God is. And by crafting things and making things amazing and beautiful, we're showing how beautiful God is. Well, what went wrong? Here's what went wrong. We ruined the plot of the movie. It's like God said to us, hey, you're my actors. Here are your roles. This is your script. And then in the middle of the movie, somebody's just like, I'm done. I'm walking out of here. Imagine how disappointed you'd be if you're watching the Newsies on Broadway, the only musical I've ever seen in my life, but it was amazing. And I didn't like musicals until I saw the Newsies. You're walking in, and you're like, this is amazing. I paid like $100 to be in here, but it's so far so good. And then halfway through the thing, the, one of the actors just like, you know what? I don't really think, the, I don't really think that the, the play is going to end this way, so I'm going to change it, and I'm going to do what I want. And he just starts going rogue. Like, the entire thing changes. Nobody knows what to do with it, right? If one actor messes up his lines, any of you have been in acting before? If one actor messes up his lines, everybody else is, like, scrambling, trying to figure out what to do. This is what happens when we deviate from God's plan. This is how we become sinners. But here's the thing. As human beings, this is where we went wrong. We developed our own reasons for all the things that we do that deviate from God's perfect plan. This is how we become sinners. Because the actor in the middle of the play says, no, but really, I really think that we can improve on the play if we do it this way. Not realizing how many things go into this. And if you've ever directed before, you know you're seeing the big picture. 
You're looking at it from a huge picture, and you're looking at every single person's part, and that's why you're giving critiques. Now, God, with the perfect plan, wants us to put on this beautiful performance, and we decided, each of us, to do our own thing. In essence, what we did was we were that guy that ruins the surprise party. We're that guy when everybody else is hiding, everyone's be, like getting ready, everyone's decorated the party, got the cake, they're waiting, and then the one guy's just like, oh yeah, I told him like, there's a surprise party today. Like, you're that guy. You ruined everything. We're that guy who's in a band, in the middle of the band, just starts, starts doing his own guitar solo in the wrong key. He's like, what are you doing? That's what sin does. We're that guy that got frustrated at the at the 2,000-piece puzzle, and then just started mashing all the pieces together and cutting them to fit. That's what sinners do. God had a perfect plan, and we deviated from it because we thought, you know what? I know better than God. Let me show you exactly how it played out in chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 7 through 9. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God created good things, and in the middle of this beautiful paradise, that's what Eden means. In this land of plenty, you can eat of any tree. In the middle he puts two trees, the tree of life, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now skip to chapter 3, and we'll read eight verses. Verse 1, chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. When did God say that? She started adding onto God's rules, right? Interpreting it for herself. God just said, don't eat it. Didn't say you can't touch it. He's like, oh, you can't eat it. Don't even touch it. Right? You're like that one kid who's just like, oh, I know we're not supposed to be here. My mom said, right? Then the serpent said to the woman, Verse 4, which is ironic, right? Because the serpent's supposed to be one of the animals that humans have dominion over, but the serpent tells the woman what to do. You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Satan's goal is to always make us question and lose trust in God. The moment when God was not around, they were no longer walking in fellowship with God, Satan crept in, and started telling them things contradictory to what God has said. Remember what the curse was on Satan later on in the chapter? That God cursed the serpent and said that he would eat dust all the days of his life. And Satan's occupation ever since the beginning is to consume dust. 
What are humans made of? Dust. And the only thing that makes us different from dust is the Spirit of God living in us. When we don't have the Spirit of God, we are Satan's prey. We're just left to Satan to be consumed. That's why it's so important that we are aware that there is a person in the universe called Satan, the devil, who is your enemy. The Bible calls him the adversary who's looking to devour each one of us. And he tells us lies all the time. You don't have to go to church. Are you serious? Like you listen to things, even though I'm teaching tonight, I'm like, well, I can't believe that. Why not? Who's telling you that? But whatever, for whatever reason, we have this propensity to not believe and just completely rule it out. Why is it that the name of Jesus is the only name that is a curse word? No one says, oh, Buddha. No one's like, Muhammad. No one does that. But the name of Jesus is the only one that people take in vain. Satan doesn't want you to get near this book because he knows if you have God's spirit that he can't touch you. So his goal has always been to make us lose trust in God. And here we see two of the things that sin brings us. As they ate of the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had number one, shame, and number two, separation. They had shame because of sin. Whenever we sin, we start to feel the weight of it. Like, I can't believe I did that. Even if it's a little thing, I told a lie, and for whatever reason, you feel guilty. And God has put his moral law, his code inside of our hearts so we would be able to see that we need a Savior. And it also brings separation from us and people and us and God. But now you might ask the question, what is so bad about eating the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, God made it, right? That's the argument people use for weed all the time, right? It was created by God, you know? So what's so bad about eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, Satan said, you're not really going to die. God said you're going to die. You're not really going to die. But he knows that if you eat of it, then you'll be wise just like God. Well, wisdom sounds like a great thing to pursue, right? So then it says, when they looked at the tree and saw that it was good for food and it was able to make one wise, then they decide to take it and eat of it. And that is what is so dangerous. Here's the problem. Our problem is our rationale. Our need to know everything. We question everything, right? Our parents tell us, because I told you so. Like, why? But think about this. Think about as a child when everybody wants to get Happy Meal from McDonald's, which is like my thing. I don't know if that was your thing growing up, but like Happy Meals from McDonald's, I was ready every single day. If you gave me a Happy Meal every single day, I would be happy. That was probably my, like, my idea of like fulfillment in life is just eat a Happy Meal every single day. You get the little toy, you get your French fries, which were never big enough, but like I'll deal with it. Chicken McNuggets, which are amazing. And if you look on like McDonald's Canada, it's not the pink slime that you think it is. It's actually good for you. I looked it up, okay. But when your parents tell you you're not getting McDonald's today, sorry, you're like, why not? The child wants the explanation. But do we actually believe any child has the ability to understand the chemical makeup of a chicken McNugget? 
right? Do we, do we actually believe that little kid, the parents is like, well, here are all the scientific experiments that lead to the fact that you can get cancer from this chicken McNugget, which is not true. But let's say it is. It is for the sake of argument, right? To rationalize with that child makes no sense because they don't have the capacity to understand it. But isn't it true that this is how we treat all of God's laws? God tells us not to do something. I'm like, why? Well, I think I, it's okay for me to lie in this instance because if I told the truth, then this person would probably hate me. So I'm going to lie. This is what man does. They sin, they deviate from God's perfect design and decide to do their own thing. But here, the Father, our Heavenly Father is trying to protect us just like an earthly father would protect the child by saying, can you just trust me? This is God's goal. is not for us to know the rules, but to know him. But what humanity wants in our human nature, in our flesh, the Bible would call it, is to just give me the rules, give me the rule book, and I'll be good. I'll go with it. But God doesn't want us to do just what is right. He wants us to walk with him. This is what Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says. God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Your heavenly Father wants you to just walk with him, to be in a loving relationship with him. And by being in that relationship, you don't need to know all the specifics about what's right and wrong. You just do what pleases him, and you'll automatically do it without even thinking about it. It's almost like if you think about it, imagine if I had, um, I had you blindfolded, and you were going to paint something, and you had a paintbrush, gave you the paint, and I told you, all right, take your arm and move it five centimeters up, move it to the right, now dip it, and I give you step-by-step instructions to paint something while you're blindfolded. Versus, I actually just say, hey, look at that mountain. I want you to paint it. There's a complete difference in those two things. And what we want as human beings in our flesh, naturally, is just give me what I have to do and I'll do it. And God says it'll be much easier if you just get a vision of what it is that I want you to see. And when we gaze upon the beauty of God, that's what drives us to do what is right. So much of our sin stems from our lack of knowledge. And this is where God wants us to trust him. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. And just as the fruit looked good to the eyes, just like it it appealed to our flesh. We wanted to eat it, right? And we also gave us the pride of life to have wisdom. It's the same thing today. So much of our sin is thinking about like what will make me wiser, what appeals to my flesh, what feels good, and what looks good. And that's what drives a lot of our decision making. But the Bible says that's not from God. That can actually lead you away from him. What leads you to him is by knowing his son, Jesus Christ trusting him and obeying him. So here's another point. Walking with God is always one step ahead of walking according to the rules. Because if you get a vision of what God wants you to see, you're doing it without even thinking about it. When you're in a loving relationship, you go above and beyond. When you're 
when you have like, you know, when you're doing your promposals, right? You guys just had prom. You think about how to outdo everybody else because you're in love or in like, whatever you want to call it. But if I, you just like Googled something, you're like, all right, I got to make sure this looks good just because I'm supposed to. That's not fun. And that's not what God desires of us. But today, people still in a sense eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil when they seek what is right apart from knowing God himself. Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden and God's presence because because they sinned, because they did what was wrong. That's all sin is. It's an archer's term about shooting a bow or shooting an arrow out of your bow, trying to hit the target and you miss the mark, even just a little bit. That's what's called sin. And we sinned, even if it's just a little bit, when we believe in ourselves that we know how to live our lives better than the God who made us. And 